The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. follow and turn to Job chapter 14. We've been exploring this book of Job, not every chapter of it, although we did look at the next previous chapter, 13, last time. But after this, we'll be skipping some large segments, and that is not to say any part of God's Word is less valuable. But it is true, though, that particularly these friends of Job tend to be saying the same thing over and over and over. And I think God gave us those long speeches to make us see how tiresome false wisdom can be. But today I read Job chapter 14, and then I'm also going to read just a couple verses from the New Testament book of 2 Timothy 1, if you want to stick your finger in there. Job chapter 14. Job is the spokesman. This is part of his longer speech after the first round of hearing from his friends. Here is Job speaking, and notice in the text, and you'll, you'll sense it, when he's sort of talking to himself, and when he actually lapses into prayer to God, when he addresses God as you, he's speaking to God. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But if a man dies and is laid low, man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again, till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused from his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, and that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you, and you would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps and you would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag." 
and you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. Waters wear away the stones, and torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he knows it not. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. Now, to that Old Testament word, add these words of Paul writing to young Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, just a few verses. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is God's word. While studying this text in the past week, pondering Job's up and down life, hopeful one moment, not hopeful the next, the pessimism that tends to seep through had me thinking about a song that was playing in my head. And being an old person, it was an old song, and some of you will remember it. The vocalist was Peggy Lee, the late Peggy Lee, I believe. Young people, I know you don't have any idea who Peggy Lee is, but uh, I would say think of a 1960s version of Beyonce. You you might sort of approach the right thing for Peggy Lee. Her song is one that expresses the viewpoint of a person disillusioned with life and and disillusioned with everything in life that might have been exciting or memorable. It opens, it's like a ballad, and it opens with her telling about the fact that she remembers when she was a girl and her house caught fire. Her father snatched her up in in the night in her pajamas and took the family out, and they watched their house burn down. And she saw that and concluded in her mind that it was just a humdrum thing. Is that all there is? To a fire. Then they took her to a circus. I went to a circus when I was a child. It was a big deal. I still remember it. And this girl went to a circus, and instead of being particularly thrilled with it, she said, Eh, is that all there is to a circus? Then she fell in love, and she and her boyfriend stared into each other's eyes and thought romantic thoughts, but then he left her departed from the relationship, and she sang, If that's all there is to love, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all. And then came the final verse of this rather unusual ballad, in which the singer said, I know, she spoke directly to her hearers and said, I know you must be saying, if that's how she feels, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no, not me. 
I'm not ready for that final disappointment, she said, because I know when that moment comes that I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying, is that all there is to life? Is that all? I was pretty sure as I was studying Job this week, and particularly this chapter, that his radio might have been playing that song while he was saying the things he had to say here. Is that all there is to life? Might I not go beyond this? Might there not be life after death? But I'm not sure. In fact, another thing I thought about was a bumper sticker I've seen. Maybe you've seen it somewhere around in this day and age. A bumper sticker that says, Life is short, then you die. That sounds a lot like Job in this chapter. As we come to this 14th chapter, he is disgusted with his friends. He's not really even speaking to them. He's more musing to himself. And as I said to you before I read the text, he lapses in and out of talking to God without warnings. He says, you, and you know he's talking to someone else. But he's not talking to these friends. He's been so disappointed in their pieties and their little ineffectual spiritual summaries that have not helped him at all, that he's turned off and and not talking to them. Job here explores the nature of death. We heard him in an earlier chapter when he said, I almost wish I'd never been born. Now he's similarly but differently saying, perhaps I could die. That would take care of all my pain and all my suffering. He's not really suicidal. I don't think he's ready to do that. But he's musing about it. He's considering it. If I did die, what would it mean? Would it mean a new beginning of some kind? Or would it just be extinction? Would it be the end of everything? What would it be? I think it's really hard for us New Testament Christians. I know when I wrote uh, several years ago, many of you know I wrote a book called What Happens After I Die. And I tried to explore the Old Testament view of death. And it's really hard to get inside the minds of the Old Testament person of faith on death because they had none of the frame of reference that we have. They did not have the cross of Christ or the resurrection. And even if they were people, men and women of faith who who trusted God in a strong way, their idea of what was out there after I die was generally vague and inconclusive. They talked about Sheol very often. And someone says, is Sheol heaven or is it hell? The answer is yes, it's both. When they talked about Sheol, they thought that's just where you go. They would say, I'll be gathered with my relatives in Sheol. I'll be gathered to my fathers. I'll be gathered to God. But they, they didn't bring to that idea of being gathered to God the, the bright idea of seeing his face or rejoicing or delighting in fellowship. They weren't really sure what was going to happen. Sheol could mean bleak darkness for some. It could mean calm and rest to others. We've had some fairly quick, violent thunderstorms here in the last couple of weeks. And you know how you're, you're driving somewhere, especially if you're on a high-speed highway where the trucks are really rolling fast, and all of a sudden a, just a cloudburst comes up and you've got to put your wipers on the highest speed and that's barely coping with the rain. And you're peering ahead. Now, if you're a guy, you keep going. You don't stop, right? 
ladies probably pull over and say, I can't cope with this, but guys are built to keep going no matter what. And here are the wipers going as fast as they can go, and the rain is just teeming down. And you can barely see 10, 20 feet ahead of you, fearful you might run into something stopped. That's a little bit what it was like to be an Old Testament person of faith. You could not see very far ahead beyond death and the grave. That you persevered and basically trusted that God would care for you somehow. So in this 14th chapter, Job expresses more questions than solutions, but I will show you that maybe you didn't see it when I was reading through the first time. There is a rather bright and remarkable passage of a couple verses in the midst of this where his hope does clarify. It's as if the, you know, the wipers make the rain go away enough that he can see further ahead. I mean, yet by the end he drops back into pessimism. Without the resurrection of Christ, we would be like that. We would not know what to hope for or what to think. But first of all, I'd ask you to look at verses 1 through 13 here of Job 14 and see the brevity and the pain of human life. We read, man is born, who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Some of you, depending on your upbringing, might know that those are the opening words of the graveside burial service of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. That expression of how brief we are and how quickly we disappear. And Job says here, look, life can be lonely, it can be cruel, and it's short. It's like a flower that just blooms and you enjoy it for a while. You say, look at that, it's beautiful. And then you turn around and it has withered and it's gone and it's short bloom. Or it's like if you're sitting maybe in one place reading a book or something or visiting with a friend and and there's a shadow on the wall but the afternoon sun is, is moving and you just watch that shadow go across the wall of the room in the hour or two that you sit there and then it's gone. And Job says, that's, that's life. And in fact, not only is life short, but it can almost seem unendurable because God seems to be bringing suffering into it. And he is a little hard on God here, saying in these verses that man's days are determined. And in verse 6, he actually gets a little sarcastic with the Lord and says, I wish you would look away and leave me alone. Leave a man alone that he might enjoy like a hired hand his day. What did he mean there? Here's a man who commanded great herds of camels and oxen and sheep and Certainly there were tenders, shepherds and tenders of the flock. And even those people with a rather hard-working life got some time off. And Job is saying, hey, I gave my hired hands a day off. God, you never give me a day off. Your suffering bears down on me 24-7. Can't you just not look my way for once and leave me alone? So there's a bit of good bit of pessimism as he opens here in the first six verses. But then in verse 7, he turns on a wonderful metaphor, word picture. And he says, there's hope for a tree. He's saying trees are actually better off than men. I have to suffer 24-7. God never looks away from me, never stops accusing me of things that I don't understand. But trees might die, and they have a chance. 
to live again. You could cut it down and you'd come back and here's the stump and you thought the tree was gone and here's sprouts or new trees coming out of the ground. My wife can testify to my fierce battle that I had for several years with a honey locust tree in my backyard. I had to look up in a book what this tree was and I was surprised to know it had such a nice sounding name, honey locust. That sounds very sweet and delightful. Believe me, you don't want a honey locust tree. It's a dirty, ugly, pernicious weed. And it bears thorns that are as large as the thorns that we see pictured in the, in the cross of, or the uh, crown of Jesus that he wore on his cross. This thing grows like crazy. Uh, I cut it down, flush with the ground, sawed it off. It was just a stump. I turned around and I don't know, very long, maybe a, a couple months. Where did that four-foot sprout come from? It's the honey locust coming back. And I cut it down again, and it came back again. And uh, this thing had 17 lives, you know, and I only defeated it by pouring a large quantity of uh, plant poison. I don't even know what it was called. Something you do to kill severe weeds. I poured about a quart of it on on the stump, and finally it it, uh, laid down and died and didn't come back again. But, But Job is saying, look, trees have another chance to live. What about the rational soul of men? It dies and it doesn't come back, it seemed to him. Man breathes his last and where is he, Job says. But after he thinks about this, at verse 13 he begins to turn a little bit towards somewhat more hopeful thoughts. And he says, God, couldn't you maybe let me go to Sheol there to have a rest? Maybe there'd be a little cave or a cavern, a limbo place there that I could go and just sit down and and take a rest from all this suffering that I've had. And then, who knows, maybe after I did that for a while, you and I could set an appointment and start over again. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what verse 13 says. He's he's saying, God, couldn't we work out some kind of an arrangement where, where death could actually give us both a break and we could start over? Well, Here's this man. He just doesn't know which way to turn. He says things that are contradictory. He says things that are pessimistic. Is it any wonder, though, that we don't do the same? We say things, people of faith who know the Apostles' Creed well and even believe it well. We say things that are bitter and bleak in their pessimism. We turn away from strong trust many times. I talked this week with a parent who was very concerned about a young person. And I could have those conversations every week with parents of our congregation or of other associations that I have who are worried about their young people who may even know the gospel and maybe have responded to the gospel in some way in their lives in the past. And and now they're confused and they're depressed and they're communicating with peers in ways that the parent is deeply worried about. They're turning towards deviant ideas and deviant sexuality and goth clothing and music and actually believing that the nihilism of our culture has something to offer. And they sound like Job, saying, maybe I just need to die. Maybe death would put my misery away somehow. Let's not forget that at any given time in our congregation there are those 
that are thinking these kinds of thoughts, like Job. Is that all there is to life? Our young people go through tremendous pressures today, especially from the middle school years until their early 20s. And they're in a low trough of feeling and emotion. And believe me, the culture is working overtime to bombard them with negative pressures. Young people who've been told about Christ and told about salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but then they're out there in the schools and in the culture and listening to the music and they're just going crazy with alternative messages, bringing them low, giving their expressions perhaps something very much like Job here, perhaps even toying with suicide because they're saying, God has no more regard for me than he does for a tree. Well, in the second place, let me turn to Job, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 14. Job 14, 14. You can remember that combination. Because here is an expression of faith, maybe in ways that you don't see, but it's here. Job is seeing the outline of something actually rather wonderful as he stops and ponders and asks himself, can I really hope for life after death? If you listen to verses 14 to 17, he says, If a man dies, will he live again? And then he says, All the days of my service, I would wait. I would stop in my tracks and listen, God, until my renewal, or some translations say my change, would come. Then you will call and I will answer you, and you would long for the work of your hands. Then you would not keep watch over my sin, for my transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover my iniquity. Can you glimpse there the outlines, at least the dim outlines that Job seems to grasp of how God one day is going to bring about hope after death? He's saying there's a change, there's a renewal that God can bring. And I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to believe that even in my frustration and my depression and my suffering, that I can wait for God to bring me a renewal. I can believe, verse 15, that my God will call to me and I will answer. And notice that phrase, he will long for the work of his hands. What does that mean? Doesn't that mean God longing for the restoration of? of man and woman in his own image and glory as he originally created us to be in the Garden of Eden? We lost that. We lost that glory. We threw it away with our sin. But he's saying, I believe God actually longs to see the work of his hands in us, restored. And then this wonderful statement, it's unlike almost any other statement in the Bible that comes in verse 17. Many things in the Bible tell about what God is going to do with our sins and transgressions, which of course he did at the cross. We're told our sins are as far from us as the east is from the west and so on. We're told that that they're washed away as white as snow. But here's a statement about them that I don't think you find anywhere else when Job says, my transgressions will be sealed up in a bag. I don't find that anywhere else in the Bible, and I think it's a wonderful description. I take our trash out on Sunday night because our trash men come bright and early Monday morning. 
So every Sunday, my last task of the day is to trudge to the curb with some black plastic bags. And being a philosopher, I often think about doing this task. You know, even garbage can stimulate philosophers. And I think, what am I doing here? I'm putting in this plastic bag at the curb all the smelly, you know, plastic containers that food has come in and broken light bulbs and junk mail that I didn't want and magazines that I've read or didn't want either. And there it is, all bagged up and sealed up, and and somebody's going to take that bag, load it in a truck, crush it in, dump the whole thing in a landfill, then next week dump another load on top of that, and all that stuff is going to disappear forever. Unless we can imagine that some 23rd century, you know, archaeologist just wants to find out how Michael Rogers lived. I doubt it very much, but uh, it's gone. It's at the bottom of the landfill. What a great way to think about our sin. Job says, Lord, you're going to renew your relationship with me if I wait for you. You're going to call on me and I'll respond. You're going to long to see your work restored in me and you're going to take my transgressions and seal them up in a bag and they're never going to be seen again. Praise God. What a wonderful description. I've never encountered one like it anywhere else in the scripture. Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ does? Isn't Job glimpsing the gospel in a manner of speaking here? He doesn't know the name of Jesus. He doesn't know about a cross yet. And yet God was making him a prophet, an early prophet of resurrection hope and what he would do to indeed answer Job's query. Can man live after he dies? What's the answer? Yes. By these terms, he can and he will. And so you and I pick this up. And of course, here's Job still dithering over this, still depressed, still in a low state. But nevertheless, he's begun to glimpse how God is going to work. He is looking for a biblical heaven that is still unseen, but yet yearned for. A biblical heaven that will come to pass because of Christ and what Christ does in history. Now, the sad thing about this text, and yet I, you know, at first I was a little bit depressed by this because it seems like he spoke so well in verses 14 to 17. And then in in 18 through 22, he reverts back and he's pessimistic and depressed again. He says, mountains fall, they get eroded away, rivers wash away their soil You destroy the hope of man, just like mountains erode. You prevail against man and he passes away. Verse 21, his sons come to honor, but we don't even know it. Job didn't have any sons anymore. He couldn't go to their graduations. If his son graduated summa cum laude from Harvard Medical School, Job would never know it. He would take no joy in his children. And so he ends with this plaintive, rather depressing statement in verse 22 that he feels only the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. Poor Job. Poor Eeyore. He really felt sorry for himself. And yet, in the midst of all this, it's important for you to see that great statement of faith that he made in the middle. Yes, his mood rose and fell. Isn't it possible yours does the same? Isn't it possible you who 
repeat the Apostles' Creed loud and firm and say the words strongly and sing the hymns with gusto, go out on Thursday and you're dragging on the ground and you're not necessarily standing firm in the hope of eternal life? Isn't it possible that this is just pretty realistic? That we all go to the mountaintop and see things and say things of faith in God and faith in eternity, and then we go down in the valley and say, woe is me. How will I ever get out of this valley? I'm thanking God for the realism of Job's experience, the wavering, the wobbly back and forth, because it's me. If Job was on on track all the time, on theological and spiritual track, on a great high, praising God through it all, I'd set the book aside. I'd say, "I, I can't live like that. That's not me. I'm like Job. I stand on the mountain at some times and say, you call and I'll answer, Lord. You'll bring my renewal. You'll bring my change. I'm confident in you. I'll wait for you. And then the next day I'm saying, oh, Lord, I'm going to die and I won't even see how my children or grandchildren turn out. Woe is me. Job's future reminds us that we need what is coming what is already underway with God in Job's time, but not yet delivered, at least not yet seen by people of faith. It was necessary for them to have only a sketchy view of the future and of resurrection events because those events required Christ. And nobody could understand them in specific nature until Christ came. Paul, of course, writes words we know and remember well in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says of the end of things when our hope will be consummated as Christians. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive who are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so will we ever be with the Lord. Are you going to tell me you live on the high of that event all the time? You don't. I'm sorry. I don't know you all perfectly well, but you don't. I don't. And yet we say, that's coming. That's the great thing. That's the climax. We know that God has appointed this. Why? Because we've read in 2 Timothy 1.8 and following these words that I shared before. We share in suffering... That's realistic. Suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, now listen, in Christ Jesus before the ages began, before Job ever started speculating about this, God was unfolding this work. And Paul went on to say, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought light and immortality to life through the gospel. Paul just said God started this process before Job ever came along and was speculating about it, before the ages began, and in his his historic right time, he brought it to pass. Through Jesus Christ. That's who Job was longing for. 
Job was just looking, looking, looking into a long, dim tunnel and saying, I don't see much light down that tunnel, and yet I sense God calling me. I sense I need to wait for what God is going to do. I sense he'll bring me a moment of renewal and fulfill his work in me. I believe in him. I think he will do it. And Job foreshadowed every man or woman living in the world today who hopes in Christ. Yes, we too get dragged down by life, don't we? We get messed up and discouraged by some of the silliest small things that if we stand back from them even six months later or even six days later, we say, why did that thing upset me so much? Why did I get so despairing because that happened? We know from history past, not history future like Job, history past that Christ has abolished eternal death. And that those who belong to him do have that mediator. Remember chapter 9 when Job said, Oh, that there was somebody who could put one arm around God and one arm around me and bring the two of us together? We know that person has come and his name is Jesus Christ. We have our mediator. We have our hopes secured. We don't look for vague possibilities after death. We look for concrete certainties. Heaven after death is accomplished, sealed, and finished for the believer in Jesus Christ because he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And yet here we are, still living somewhat like Job at least, stumbling around, sometimes depressed, sometimes worn down by the rain and wind and falling rocks and moving soil of events and circumstances. But we know the answer to Job's question. If a man dies, will he live again? We know the answer is yes. One hundred times yes. For the risen Jesus said, he who believes in me Although he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives while believing in me will never die. Thank you, Job, for anticipating that. Thank you, Lord God, for bringing it to pass in real time and space history for real people today who know where to put their trust. May you do so. Father, thank you. Thank you for this man, Job, for the great honesty he had, that he could speak faith at one moment and then lapse back and be depressed again. We thank you because he's like us. He's not a superman, just a man. But we thank you for the one who was more than just a man, Jesus Christ, who came to give us the answer to if a man die, will he live again? May we trust in him, whatever our circumstances. May we hold firm him who has taken hold of us in this way. We praise you, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.